yeah, I mean, I think the um, past few days have been a bit like, uh, slow in terms of uh, brain functionings and the dog's still not fully functioning or working at the session yet, which is a good thing to find things. I feel uh, this current time exhaustion and also I, it's really interesting to see how my mood or my uh, capacity to do things has changed uh, over this past two months. I'm actually very curious to hear your experience because you've been talking to people over this entire period and also the very aim of this podcast is to record and reflect on the current situation so I'm curious to hear how your experience has been so far and is there something interesting that you've noted for yourself yeah I think it's been yeah certainly it's been waves like you have described we've been going through different moods at the beginning it was um, yeah there was almost like a frenzy or like a curiosity as you said but also like expectancy of what is this that is coming and you know especially with the news uh, well in fact we started every podcast looking at the numbers uh, and then lately we haven't been doing that which is interesting because at the beginning it was a way uh, that the number of things I guess for many people it's weird that we were trying to make sense through this numbers which is quite abstract but somehow it's like trying to judge the magnitude of what's going on mm -hmm. and um, yeah I guess certain themes keep coming back um, which I think through the conversation we can bring them up but um, uh, yeah certainly these different kind of moods coming and going and uh, exhaustion as you were saying and tiredness and like i guess frustration there are uh, different ways of dealing with the with the lockdown as well because i've been doing a kind of register ethnographic register with a friend in spain where the lockdown is like a little bit uh, harder than here in the UK, and now by by uh, yeah these these days we were sharing this yeah these feelings that you were mentioning us about like at the beginning is very very exciting but now it's like exhaustion and like the repetition the mundane aspect like colonizing every little bit I don't know how it is the lockdown in Eastern Ukraine, how it is the, the quarantine in terms of law, uh, what are you allowed to do? Um, no. So I spent my lockdown in Dnipro, Eastern Ukraine. We went on a full lockdown very early. We were not allowed to go to parks. We wouldn't be allowed to be on the streets. We were more than two people. The fines for not wearing masks or going into parks were really very high. And also our Ministry of Health uh, would acknowledge they would do it to steer more anxiety in the society. When it was really strict, it got really claustrophobic. And also and people were much more panicking because of police, not because of virus. Oh, really? So they were tough in terms of enforcing the law? 
yeah. Yeah. And you, Soleil, where are you spending the quarantine? I, w I was in Berlin this whole time. Yeah, um, I mean, go ahead, Matching. Uh, yeah, no, I was um, uh, very curious to hear how all these changes uh, that are occurring are affecting your practice that is also very much based in the infrastructure that we have and forms of um, yeah like how we we deal with the forms of recording and of accessing data that there is you know through technological means but also forms of control and so on so how is it is it like making you reconsider uh, what geocinema is? It's all been very uncanny. You know, we spent the past two years, first year, being in the field, so to say, um, in based in Beijing, Shanghai, and also Bangkok, where we were literally looking at um, this project called the Digital Belt and Road, which is the, the digital counterpart to the One Belt and One, One Road initiative. And so, of course, this is an initiative uh, set up by the Chinese government, which is very hybrid and international. But as Asia pointed out, it's to aggregate Earth observational data in order to support risk management, essentially, of extreme weather events and climate change in regions of the Belt and Road and beyond. There's been a huge uh, infrastructural diplomacy between China and various countries, and this included things like laying down fiber optic cables alongside high-speed rail. What was really important for us was to link it to longer histories of prediction, of infrastructure, of, of data collection. The project was about this longer history of observation that fed into forms of governance. So this is where we see forms of visualizing the Earth coincides with the colonial history. And then, so we were actually looking at how contemporary forms of, um, or optical regimes, how they mobilize certain geopolitics and forms of extraction that eventually fed into phenomena such as climate change. <laughs> it was funny because we were supposed to go to China to film, to complete this episode. The essence of our project is this idea of certainty or how politics employs science to promise more certainty. And so then we, we were planning to go to China and then there are news about this virus. So over the next few weeks, we talk with Solway every day, like, should we cancel the journey? It's and I was quite ridiculous because every, essentially every time we decided to shift our journey, we'd be like, okay, let's, let's shift it for two weeks, maximum one month. And then that one month would pass and then we'd have to shift it again for another month. So devastation after devastation. So everything started to collapse. And first, because we both were in Europe at that time, and media in Europe, everyone was quiet about the virus as if Europe has this immune system. I don't know. So we were just trying to figure out, reading news, talking to friends and relatives if we should go. And then I said to Solway, like, we should still go because you'll see this entire thing will be over in two weeks. <laughs> and then so our flights were about to be canceled. And then everything fell as kind of a domino. So all the other events in Europe were canceled. And eventually we didn't go. The pandemic also is the time where we not only see what is working, what is not, but also what is this promise of certain infrastructures. Our case study is the infrastructure that promise certainty based on data. 
And what we have now with this virus, we see, you know, events such as natural disasters or the threat of a climate are being instrumentalized to justify politics that would assemble more data that are eventually used more often for extractive politics rather than for prevention of climate risks. Right. So I think it's also a lot of this weird temporal disjuncture because, you know, on the one hand, there's this absolute short-sightedness of of needing to risk manage this um, immediate disaster. And do you think this whole process is accelerating uh, geopolitical power shifts? I mean, it seems that China is going to be able to gain uh, much power, or I'm just thinking of the way, well, on the one hand, it was be giving, offering place, you know, like countries in Europe uh, giving help and everybody had to go to China in order to get uh, equipment. It's, for example, uh, Norwegian Airlines, which was at the verge of collapse, China is putting, um, is buying quite a lot of it. So how do you think this uh, process ch will change the geopolitical uh, power shifts? Maybe we also can link this question back to what we learned through our field work. Mm -hmm. um, because, of course, we cannot, like neither of us can scale how this will affect geopolitical, so we don't have enough resources and expertise to respond to that. But what we learned from our field work, yes, what is happening today, so these are this kind of extreme forms of capitalism where what this is what China does, investing into infrastructural development uh, on other continents or in other countries with certain conditions, right? So, for example, something might be built for free for the next, or that it is free for the next 50 years, but then the country has to pay back in this or that way that they might not be able to uh, eventually perform. So there are all these micro processes happening uh, everywhere. So they create these new forms of dependency between the countries. But then also with, with the project that we work on with the Digital Belt and Road project, this is the project that has been launched under Chinese Academy of Sciences, right? So it's wrapped into kind of a scientific need and international collaboration between scientists. So there is this promise of having more knowledge so then uh, the promise of science can be can unfold further and the risks can be addressed uh, scientifically but this knowledge the promised knowledge that these platforms can aggregate become also kind of instruments for power because even if they do collaborate not every country can afford infrastructures for earth observation or not every country can afford the software. That's like um, to go back to your earlier point with the, the debt diplomacy that China is lending. So I think it's kind of an interesting model just because the Belt and Road Initiative has lent up to around, let's say, like 350 billion US dollars to um, a lot of different nation states. So each time the, that they uh, provide a loan, it's not, uh, it's not similar to the World Bank where they have all of these pre-written conditions, but each time they make a negotiation, it's a different type of negotiation. Some countries would lend out, um, rent out land or 
um, give mines or um, build ports. And so, so there's this, um, a, a different uh, infrastructural diplomacy happening. I do feel like it's an interesting time for this, but it's also like a turning point um, in many ways. I remember in the very beginning, we were very hopeful that perhaps, you know, coronavirus would be an interesting time for really disturbing these economic relations. But then again, I feel like as time went on, we felt more and more jaded about um, how it just reinforces many of these relationships even further. Yeah, I was just about to say, so the initial question was about new geopolitical possibilities. I feel like the, the pandemic is accelerating what was already on the way yeah. with this yeah, investment politics and also the neoliberal forms of governance because Belt and Road, as much as the digital Belt and Road projects, they create these platforms as set of policies, rules, promises that each country or each, it might be actually an independent investor, so they, they can negotiate with the Belt and Road project. So this is a really mi migrating form of, or migrating technology, as Aichwa Ong says. It's really hard to locate, right? Because it's not that certain politics happens within one country with very visible form of, or like with a visible architecture of power and economy. Belt and Road creates this form of migrating governance and, and business uh, that it's really hard to, um, what's the word, local, localize or just uh, see, where to territorialize it. Yeah. So this is what is interesting, this invisible forms of governance that happen also through the, this invisible forms of operations with data economy. I find this fascinating because I guess by you shifting the emphasis, you know, from the global to the planetary and have a kind of broader perspective on what's going on, um, it allows you to give some, to have some kind of leverage point or perspective on then this process of globalization that is occurring, but at the moment is um, in such a weird state in the sense of uh, as you said, there are processes that the whole uh, governance is becoming more and more blurry. So it's like this globalization is accelerating in certain complicated ways. But on the other on the other hand, we see processes or uh, you know people or even countries, you know, just by necessity acting at the national level and ideologically going back to, you know, forms of nationalism. So, do you think that um, by your practice having such a wide perspective on the planetary level and that kind of gives you some kind of um, different entry point of understanding the process of globalization? we decided to just address this topic, Digital Belt and Road. So we just started digging information online and we found out that Chinese Academy of Science is the lead in this project. So we just went there and literally sent emails, knocked on doors and uh, tried to figure out how, how do we even begin to understand this very complex system. And it is complex politically and economically and historically. And what was really interesting, and this is, one of the scenes in the current film, we enter the cinema theater 
And this cinema theater is located at the center of the campus of Chinese Academy of Science. This is where we were invited to watch film, this promo film about Digital Belt and Road. And this film, as much as well as the project of Digital Belt and Road, was inspired by Al Gore, the former American vice president who coined this idea of digital earth in the 90s. So this is where we, we begin our journey to understand where this idea of the earth as something that is being threatened with the, cl the climate change and something that needs to be protected. So this is where we begin our journey to even understand how these kind of notions of care and protection of earth or humanity come from. So this was my long introduction into this new entry points that you asked. It was really fascinating to see how these ideas that are at the core of how this present-day globalization practices are taking shape. So it's been decades before, and for us it was really interesting to go back to the post-war time and these frameworks that has been established after the war uh, by establishment of United Nations, by the introduction of GDP as a measure of countries' success, and then by forms of international monetary relationships that actually led us to the present day. So in fact, what is China doing right now is nowhere new, it's nothing new. I was thinking, because uh, you were mentioning something very interesting, and as well I think um, you wrote about this in the past, uh, regarding, again, this, this prediction, this certainty that you are appealing uh, regarding data and the, the different uh, perception of time that, that now in this moment is, is so evident as well regarding this uh, invisible and fictional rift between Europe and Asia, for example, and how every country is running a, a different clock, so to speak. And I don't know if uh, you would like to um, develop or express more your, your interest in in this, in, in, in the notions of, I'm thinking, for example, in terms of like Nelson Goodman in this context, the, the contrast between uh, a perturbation, a source of noise, like, for example, this pandemic uh, as a ontological or psychological phenomena, and how this becomes then uh, unpredictability, like the the impossibility of a forecast in Goodman's, Goodman's terms or a, a, a prophecy, because I think is uh, this is interesting uh, precisely because of the time independent function of prediction that remains the goal of science, almost like the oracle of Delphi because it's like uh, the key difference uh, between, uh, let's say, a weird uh, mystical prediction and a very accurate one 
is yes, this, this function of time, independence, and the certainty. So in terms of extremely uh, volatile data, I think it's a, a very interesting notion to, to grasp. So I don't know if you have any thoughts regarding yeah, how, how you use certainty, prediction, forecast within your project. Prediction is a really interesting um, thing to explore in this regard because if we look at kind of historically, prediction is something that comes from a scientific realm, right? But then is being instrumentalized rather politically today. And um, I really liked how Arundhati Roy, um, an Indian writer, last month she said that if earlier we were sleepwalking into a surveillance state now we panically run into it what we see with the the virus situation is that it justifies or it instrumentalizes this uh, psychological fear to justify this forms of data gathering and if you don't mind i have a quote that i want to read please go ahead so yeah, this is a quote from uh, Eric Swingedouf, who is a scholar in radical geography and he comments on Anthropocene. He uh, explains Roberto Esposito's analysis of biopolitical um, governmentality. So he says, um, Esposito's main claim expands on Michel Foucault's notion of biopolitical governmentality as the quintessential form of modern liberal state governance by demonstrating how this biopolitical frame today is increasingly sutured by an immunological drive, a mission to seal off objects of government, the population, from possibly harmful intruders and recalcitrant or destabilizing outsiders that threaten the bio-happiness, if not sheer survival, of the population and guarantees that life can continue to be lived. Immunobiopolitics are clearly at work, for example, in hegemonic Western practices around immigration, health, or international terrorism. It is not also the case that many of the sustainability, resilience, smart technologies, and adaptive eco-managerial policies and practices are precisely aimed at reinforcing the immunological prowess of the immune system of the body politic against recalcitrant, if not threatening, outsiders, such as CO2, waste, bacteria, refugees, viruses, jihadis, ozone, financial crisis, and like. So then the life, as we know, can continue. So essentially, we have a very similar situation now when we have this virus as the outsider or natural disaster or climate as this threat that needs to be fought against. So then the life as we know it could be lived. But of course, this life as we know is a very false claim. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember just even at this moment, there's so much because of the increased fortification for example, Germany is only allowing up to 50 refugees in right now. And actually, when I was in the conference that Chinese Academy of Science organized, so there was a presentation done by a group of researchers in Chinese Academy of Science who so they developed these algorithms for WeChat. WeChat is the um, yeah. social media, right? So they developed this algorithm that does natural language processing 
and kind of sift through the words that are being spoken or written on WeChat. And it responds to certain lexicon, like if it register words such as flood or hurricane. So it immediately pays attention to where is it happening and what is the information. The idea is that uh, people use, uh, everyone uses WeChat today, and people report on certain events much faster than the official media would do. So then the government can respond faster and better, so they claim. And of course, on one hand, it is wrapped in this really noble (laughs) idea of care and protection. But at the same time, we see further that these same algorithms are also this new form of surveillance and uh, control. And again, with these green politics or the, the green rhetorics that is being now present everywhere, right, because of the climate change, so we see how easily uh, the idea of a threat from bacteria, virus, climate, whatnot, is being used to collect more data. And of course, we are all okay. Like I'm, I'm in Ukraine and I see how quickly, like within two months, it became so normal to have all these various forms of like your temperature is being checked everywhere and then other forms are being pitched by government, which is uh, a bit authoritarian. So this is how it really becomes dangerous. The promise of certainty is also something that can be really harmful. Yeah, this is really interesting. I have I had no idea. So uh, could you explain to me again? So in WeChat, there are certain terms that trigger uh, certain reactions in terms of uh, being all the time uh, monitor these conversations. So if you mention, for example, an earthquake, mm-hmm. something is going to be done because what? alarms start to ring. So let's say if a certain amount of people uses the word earthquake in certain geography, yes. so it is very likely that something is happening there. So these algorithms would inform the government way earlier than anything else. What's even stranger is that, I mean, okay, so this is still in like proto stage, so it's not actually implemented just yet. But of course, WeChat is, is, you know, a completely um, centralized database. So that's why it makes the search function very easy. But what they're trying to do is also create a scale of um, emotions Uh, when a natural disaster is ongoing. So, for example, um, say there's a typhoon. They would be able to translate the WeChat conversations around that area or that city to map out the different moods that are happening across that city. Hmm. So um, if there's like a negative uh, mood somewhere, they can kind of respond to it. This is their, their way of risk management, of being able to respond to this emergency by understanding that this is a high-risk zone because people are sad or complaining or like discuss or using similar words in that realm. But it's really strange because it is, again, flattening all of these emotions within this very uh, simple scale of positive and negative. These ways of collecting data about natural disasters, they are also being implemented elsewhere. I knew that in Indonesia, it was 
I think it was either NGO or, but they had this app used to actively inform about events happening. But it's just, I think the owner of the app was different. So I think it always depends. Who is it? Is it? How is it? How is the data gathered? Under what consent? Yeah. I guess, yeah, but being the Chinese government and having so much power and able to influence and to, you know, how I, I was wondering, you know, how will they change the mood? And do you know if uh, they use similar techniques uh, in TikTok? At least there was a lot of really interesting small gestures of resistance that are happening on TikTok that uh, is not being able to be detected through NLP or natural language processing, for example, because you know, it's not written in hashtag, it's, it's purely a visual that hasn't been caught on yet as something against governmental policy. So, I don't know, I feel like TikTok maybe is an interesting and um, more flexible realm to work within. Yeah, there is something interesting because to some extent uh, we have experience of previous events like terrorist attacks and the use of notifications in Facebook so you were able to know if your friend was okay during this attack but it was a kind of yeah social communication but then the the uh, in in a very basic kind of sense like calling your mom and saying I am okay but the way in which we can uh, produce algorithms that have this um, capacity of prediction and they are scale sensitive and they are able to produce uh, a chain of reactions. So they are influencing back the environment, they are controlling the environment is, uh, I think is much more complex because the way in which you or we produce the map uh, by providing data could end in a, let's say, dead zone in which you have like pure raw information or could be very useful information within a, a uh, like let's say complex interactive system. I don't know if if you are following me because I I think I need another coffee. But uh, uh, the, <laughs> yeah, but the, I just yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. So you started with Facebook, right? And this yeah. act of care, like to let each other know. There is a more and more discussion happening around this idea of care and infrastructures, how these things are being uh, intertwined. Uh, because again, I mean, Facebook is also brutal, right? In how and what their algorithms are and what information they collect and how they eventually operationalize it. We all know the Cambridge Analytica and other instances. But coming back to care, I just want to bring up a practice of our friends. They are called uh, Collective of, of Distributed Cognition. So they their names are Sasha Shostakova and Anna Engelgard. They both are from Russia. And one of their projects, which is called Care for the Loose Ground, in Russian. So their research is about Crimea, which is now annexed by Russia. 
So they do their research in showing how the logic or the rhetoric of care was used by Imperial Russia. So they would say, oh, we care about this part of this land, so we will bring new modern irrigation systems. So they started this irrigation infrastructure by which they destroyed local irrigation systems built by Crimean Tatars. So they brought these new infrastructures and eventually they sent Crimean Tatars elsewhere and cleaned the peninsula and then essentially occupied it and nowadays annexed it. So through care or the, the protection, there are all these various infrastructures that are from the start very biased. And so I think what you also just spoke about, how all these kind of things feed back into landscapes or how they feed back into complex system. So these are very long processes. And of course, there is a, a clear impact <laughs> at the end uh, that we can see. And it's really material. Devastated landscapes. And they are devastated paradoxically because someone wanted to care <laughs> about them. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there is no such a thing as an isolated system. Always uh, is, is, is the case that uh, whatever you are going to uh, spit on Facebook is going to have a reaction. But I am talking almost in terms of reading the screen of a radar and having to have a, a, a reaction to certain input. So in cases like a highly instrumentalized use of data in order to predict something that could be extremely serious, like a natural catastrophe or a virus, etc. Uh, this, yeah, this massive control of the algorithm uh, over the landscape, over the environment, uh, makes me think about how actually this uh, this algorithm, this use of data can construct the prediction, if you know what I mean. It's like uh, the, the fiction in, in literal terms is this construction of the immediate future so um, you are constructing yeah. the result of but something that you design yeah isn't it isn't it that the case with racial profiling that absolutely have, yeah you know, absolutely yeah 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 yeah, yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I um, actually, I have to mention uh, UC Perica, who is a media theorist, and we've been working with him for a while. He has written and spoken about this reading, uh, like how to read surfaces and how by reading surfaces, certain futures are being pre-programmed. And this is something that we explored in our work and we departed from the work of Jennifer Gabris, who wrote a book which is called Program Earth. And she begins her book by quoting Marshall McLuhan, who says that uh, as soon as the first Sputnik uh, artificial satellite was launched, the Earth became programmable. So this is exactly this kind of acceleration when a satellite has this mobile geodesic laboratory that scans the Earth's surface and is capable of figuring out where certain resources are. 
So by knowing where resources are, I'm very simply speaking right now, you can predict certain markets, certain relationships. And this is the so-called great acceleration because we have a new uh, regime of accessing information about the Earth's crust and therefore we can predict markets and predict future and then move towards that desired potential future. I and mean, this is where the landscapes are becoming pre-programmed towards certain scenarios on the level of economy or politics. I mean, it was interesting even going back to the cinema theater and that um, promo uh, trailer that Asia mentioned. Um, you know, they mentioned this program 973, which um, is the kind of state-led research program supporting this research into uh, climate change. But it takes a roots with very close alignments to the industry and economy where it's predominantly supported the extraction of rare earth elements. So again, you, you see this like beginnings of knowing this environmental beginnings, beginning with extraction. And I think just following what Yussi was talking about, we, I think we lean a lot on this quote that he says where there's a double bind between knowing about the earth and the earth allowing that knowing to happen. Um, and so this goes back to this uh, history of uh, networks of sensors seeing into the Earth's crust was always twinned by this um, outward extraterrestrial exploration looking back into itself, where there's this double bind between the need to extract, uh, one needs to go into space, and in order to go up, one needs to go down to build more satellite apparatuses out from the extraction. And I'm, uh, I, I really like in the... In the part, this last point, which I would love to, yeah, because I, I don't think it's meant to be like, uh, like, well, it says planetary cinema or collectivity. And it's not like one or the other. I guess it's like, okay, what, you know, what's the relationship? But uh, because, it, you know, uh, okay, we have these governments that are able to do some forms of planetary cinema or like get the registration at the planetary level, but for very specific purposes. Um, the question will be, what would it take to collectivize or to have access in a collective way to that kind of material and what to do with it? Um, and I guess you, you are doing that by, you know, assembling all this uh, different material and putting it in the open, um, generating conversations. But uh, it seems that it requires a big pedagogic effort to explain these very complexes that are occurring. So how do you think a collective understanding of, uh, of this planetary cinema can be done or yeah. Yeah, I think the, um, that's a really good point about this um, big pedagogic uh, feat. Um, I think just to go back, a lot of our work has been to always connect more recent starting points and, and case studies to much uh, longer lineage of photography and image cultures. Um, so, for example, things like images that can only be read by machines or read by staff to check quality of products and assembly line or logged for crossing security. But so I think this linking with a range of things like science and measurement of control and capital labor is, 
is absolutely a part of this pedagogical effort um, to try to understand this overabundance of recording, archiving, distribution, or um, these absolutely overwhelming scales and amounts today. So of course, it's this um, more conceptual questions relating to how we understand time, our cognitive abilities to critically reflect on these processes and their effects. We always wanted to address places that feel closer to our own histories or political stakes, whether in China or Ukraine or beyond. And um, I think we wanted to hold on to cinema because we always thought of it as a very productive prism to understand uh, cinema as a collective experience of being entranced within a shared space, um, especially as it moves across scales. And just to um, kind of link it to one quick quote from uh, theorist Uta Paul, uh, she speaks about how cinema, uh, the cinematic circles and withdraws back into the subroutines of the mind, the apparatus of the industry and landscapes. And I think with the collectivity, maybe Asia, you have more to say on, on this. No, you just really nicely unpacked it, and I uh, I loved <laughs> hearing you speaking about it. But I must say, this the question of like how we make certain things collective and common. These are really big questions, right? If we understand the the current crisis of the world, and we need to shift towards more communal responsibility for things, how do we even make it? So I must say that we are rather modest, so we rather set up a situation through our practice for a relatable and very careful way of figuring out the potential things. And as we mentioned, we do teach once in a while. And I think for us, uh, pedagogical practice is where we can have a group of people and give them as, as much as we know and invite them to collectively think certain uh, phenomena. And I think through making these bonds between each other and also to in relation to certain themes, even on a small scale, we manage to achieve this small collective uh, geocinema <laughs> utopia. So we do pedagogy and also we do documentary film and uh, research. So I think we're very much generally process driven. And so with, with any methods, we, we just always try to re-listen, re-watch, discuss, mm -hmm. edit, uh, process these uh, movements, architectures, affects, conversations, and scenes. And I think this is something that we find um, a very uh, political practice. And since you've mentioned the, the history of cinema, like if we go back to the early Soviet avant-garde, right, with people like Eisenstein or Zygavert of willing to create new citizen, create a new person and then a new society and a new state so they would experiment but unfortunately they were at the same time really blind to certain violences that were happening while this state was emerging so but what i'm uh, saying is that it is really tricky when one comes up with a scenario on how to educate everyone through aesthetics i think with this knowledge we are rather interested in thinking about cinema as something that mobilizes or something that, as Soli said, entrances, right, and kind of invites into active participants in what kind of scenarios we can imagine, rather than cinema as giving a certain solution or giving a certain truth about how things should be done. Yeah.